0: to smash my, my earpiece, so. Um, man, it, it's good for the Christmas to kind of recalibrate, refocus, and I'm excited. I'm excited about all that's in front of us when it comes to um, just worshiping God and celebrating Jesus. Um, I loved how Estrella was sharing about what God has done in her Father Angel's life. Church family, we've been praying for Angel. Many of you have been asking about him, and um, it's, a, it's a miracle what God has done. I mean, let's just call it what it is, all right? I mean, uh, Brother Eddie sent me an e- uh, a text message of, of Angel walking down the hospital uh, hall a couple days ago. And my first thought was Lazarus. Because uh, last time Pastor Jeremy and I were there, in all honesty, we, we thought this would be his last night. And that was November 14th. God has raised him up and is uh, bringing healing. It's a miracle, and we, may, we must make sure to give God the glory for all of that. Yeah. Family, we know that there are times where, where God just, he, he just shows off like that, and we've got to make sure we're acknowledging it. And there's other times God's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to grow you through suffering, and I'm not going to heal the way you're asking. And, and we don't know when God's providence is going to uh, answer our prayer requests in that way or another way. But one thing I know for sure, and I've been telling our kids this, is we got to pray for God to move. We, we can't say, like, oh, God, he might not do it. Let that, let that be up to God. But let us pray and ask him to do it. And just say, God, with an open hand, we bring our prayer requests. We know that all this is in your power. There is nothing beyond you. So we just come praying, asking you to do this. And Lord, if it not be your will, we trust you. But Lord, we're going to keep praying. We're going to be at the throne room. We're going to pound heaven with prayer after prayer after prayer. And you know why we do that? Because he tells us to. He tells us to. And so family, we got to keep interceding for people. There are people in your lives you've given up praying for because they have been so hard-hearted toward Jesus. And I just want you to... Change the mindset and say, God, you're, you're telling me to, to go back to the drawing board and keep praying. There are some people with illness that you've given up praying for. And God's saying, no, don't stop. There are some people and situations in your life you've given up on, don't stop praying, family. Okay? I'm telling you as much as I'm telling me right now. And we hold it all with an open hand and say, God, have your way. We promise, God, to give you all the credit because you alone deserve it. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into That wasn't the sermon, guys. That was just, I just had to say that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give you all the glory. We love you. We thank you for what you've done through Jesus. It is a beautiful name, in the name of Jesus. There is no rival, God. God, your rival is not Satan. He's merely a created being. You are the eternal God on a throne. You've got no rival. You've got no evil. God, we praise you. Lord, we come today, just want to lift up the different burdens in our hearts, the peoples in our hearts. We pray for those friends of ours, those classmates, those family members that don't know Jesus and our hearts break. God, we pray for their salvation. God, we ask for those who are sick that you would touch them with a healing touch. God, we pray that you would do the impossible. God, we specifically want to pray for continued healing over Angel's life, for full recovery. God, I pray that he would be able to be be back here at the brook soon. We pray for Ethan for full recovery from his leukemia. God, we pray that his, his chemotherapy would be effective. God, our trust is not in the chemo, it is in you. And God, we know that you use chemo, so we're praying that you would, God. Would you heal We pray for our sister Kate Phillips and her battles with vertigo and the severity of it. God, I pray that you would stabilize that, God. Lord, that you would use whatever means you see fit, God, to bring her healing and wholeness. God, we pray and ask you for it. God, we rejoice even today at the news from uh, our sister Barbara Jenkins telling me that Wayne has finished his 24 months of chemotherapy and he is in remission. Hallelujah. So God, we just keep asking, God, and we pray that we'd be Trusting your will. We pray that you would align our hearts with yours. So, God, increase our faith when we haven't got it. I think of that father who said, God, I, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Would you raise up faith in this place? God, I pray that your spirit would speak through me right now. Lord, I know that you have a word for the saints in this room. That is, those who put their faith in Jesus. And I know you have a word for those who have yet to do so, who right now are not children of God. You've got something for them today. I pray that all of us would come away with a greater sense of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, God is good. Man, it's good. i got a question for you. You ever made a dumb decision? Yeah, you probably thought of five right off the bat, right? You ever done something? You said that was that was probably that was pretty foolish. One more time, I read an article this past weekend of an art exhibit in Miami. You might have heard about this, where a particular art piece went for sale. I think it was on Friday for one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's an Italian artist by the name of Mauricio Catalan. He made an art piece. He titled "Comedian." And the truth of the matter is the joke is on us because in this art piece, he took a piece of tape and taped the banana to a white wall. That's it. Even more so is this the third of these pieces he has sold for about that same amount, $120,000. People were flooding this Miami exhibit this week. To take a look at it, I think of dumb decisions. I think of the purchaser of the banana. But if that weren't enough, yesterday, a day or two after the original piece was sold, another artist, who was a performance artist named David Tuna, he went to the art exhibit, and he did the unthinkable. What are you not supposed to do at an art exhibit? Touch. Not only did he touch the banana, but he untaped the banana, peeled the banana and perform the art of eating the banana. He said in his Instagram post, you can watch the video, he says, I really love Mauricio Catalan's artwork, and I really love this installation. It's very delicious. (laughs) And so now they're trying to explain how you make an art piece of something that just got eaten. Yeah. Bad decisions all around in this, this story here. We've made bad decisions in our lives. That's a a silly example, of course, of very real things that we've done. Um, Decisions where we have kind of looked back and said, if I can get that one back, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But a lot of times our decisions, furthermore, are based on something in our heart's condition called pride. Pride makes us think we're untouchable. Pride causes us to think we're invincible and that we can't fall. So we often make decisions based on our prideful thinking that we often regret, sometimes quickly, sometimes not. Our pride causes us to think that we deserve something, so we go out and get it. That we won't get caught. Or even if we did, it's not going to matter. Pride causes us to go down for the count, to use a boxing illustration. What I want us to do today, we're going to see King David, a man who actually got down for the count, both literally and pun, in a pun way. When we're down for the count, we've got to begin to ask, how did I get here? And then also ask, can I count on God to get me out of here? You know the answer is yes. But we're going to see what this looks like for King David. And it looks like for you and I, when we've made decisions and done things we regret having done. Would you meet me in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24 in the Bible? 2 Samuel chapter 24. And uh, if you get there, once you get there, would you rise to your feet? I'm going to read a portion of the scripture for us. 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the chair in front of you, a blue one, hardcover, English standard version. And in that Bible, what page are we on? Anyone got that? There we go, 277. We've been going through the study of a life of a man named David, the king of Israel. And we've seen this man to be a great, great, mighty warrior. We've seen his ups, we've seen his downs. And today we're going to wrap up our series and tie a bow around it as we look at the very last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. It's the way this story of David concludes here, according to these two books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Here's what God's word said in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 and following. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people." But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the number a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 8. So when they had gone through all the land... They came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of the, to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. In what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the Prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall 3 years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee 3 months before your foes while you while they pursue you? Or shall there be 3 days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide the answer. I shall what answer I shall return to him who sent me. This is God's word you may be seated. I'm going to give you some background here, because you're like, this is a very obscure kind of sounding passage. And we saw oftentimes in the life of David, things at first glance seem obscure, but when we understand some of the culture behind it and what God is saying, it's like, ah, that's pretty clear. I I see what's going on. Last week, we had a very heavy sermon on the story of David's children. There was a lot of conflict in his family. He had a beautiful daughter named Tamar. He had a son who's the to be the, the heir to his throne named Amnon. Amnon takes sexual advantage of his own sister, and there is a division in the family. Now, Tamar has a, another brother named Absalom. Absalom is her full brother. they got the same mother and father. Absalom, long story short, takes vengeance for his sister, executes his own brother, and proceeds to try to take over the throne from King David himself. This is a long portion in 2 Samuel. The way it all pans out is Absalom is able to take over the throne of Israel. King David goes back on the run for some time, ends up coming back because his courageous warriors went over, executed his other son Absalom. David becomes king again in Israel, and now we come to this end of the book of 2 Samuel. It is turmoil through and through. This mighty story of King David is slowly spiraling out of control. He takes a woman that's not his wife and kills off her husband. His sons and daughters kill and and abuse one another. He loses his throne only to regain it, to come to this end of this book where he makes another foolish decision. And we we read this, we're like, man, what is going on in this guy's life? Well, one thing we know is he's very much human. He's very much human, and all of us got to understand something, man. We're all capable of falling on our faces. David understood this here. We see in chapter 24, verse 1, a very interesting statement. Again, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So we don't know why God is angry again with his people, but we know that his people are very hard-headed, kind of like you and I. And time and again, God's like, don't you see how good I am to you? And they're like, yeah, we praise God. And, and like 10 minutes later, they're worshiping false idols, or they're taking credit for things, or they're going their own way. And here we see God is angry again, and he incites David to number them, to take a census. Now, I say this is an interesting passage because there's a parallel to this in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Um, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but this is what it says. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So if you caught that, in the passage we read, it says God incited David to do this. In Second Chronicles, it said Satan incited David to do this. And I read that, I'm like, well, that's an interesting thing. One says God did it, the other one says Satan did it. And what is the right answer? Well, We believe the Bible is inspired by God. And oftentimes when there are differences like this, it's a difference of perspective. So here, clearly, God is sovereign over everything, and Satan can do nothing under God's jurisdiction without God knowing it. So what God used to test David, Satan wanted to use to tempt him to sin. God wanted to use this census as a form of punishment of his people, and Satan wanted to use it to destroy David. So what David does, he goes on and actually gives in. He doesn't respond well to the test. And he follows Satan's strategy to take a census. Now, you and I are thinking, like, well, what's wrong with the census, all right? He just wants to count how many people there were. In fact, there were censuses early in the Bible, and there were no issues with it. And so the issue is not God with numbers. God's okay with numbers, all right? Acts 2.41 says that 3,000 people came to know Jesus after Peter preached. We know that Jesus fed how many people? 5,000. How do we know these numbers? Somebody counted them. So, what's wrong with counting here that God gets so upset about? Well, that's the, that's the key answer, key question to this story. What it appears to be is King David wants his commander to go through his land and count all the soldiers, all the warriors. David wants to know how powerful his military has become. So, that in itself is not wrong, but what seems to become very clear is that David is a guy who's beginning to take credit for what God has done. David is excited to know about how big his military is so that he could boast in himself and in the ways he has secured the nation. In fact, to the point where his general, Joab, is like, David, don't do this. This is, this is not a wise thing. But it says that David prevailed against him. See, the problem with this These numbers were clearly acceptable for God normally because they could only be explained by God. But here David was doing it for his own credit. So it's the motive and the goal behind the counting that either validates or condemns it. David here wants to count not to give praise to God, but count to take the praise as the king. You and I need to understand something here. Our God is a good God who is always working in our lives. And it is a very tempting thing for us to look in the mirror and say, I did it. It is a very tempting thing for us to take credit for that which God has done. And I need you to understand something here. We cannot grow tired in deflecting praise from us and giving it to God. We just cannot grow weary doing it. You may be putting in the blood, sweat, and tears for something, But you've got to understand the very reason you got breath and strength for the blood, the sweat, and the tears is because God has given you the strength to do it. So why should we labor for something, take credit for it, when God's the one who strengthened us for it and give us the results for it? David is here taking credit for God at work. He got tired of deflecting praise and began to receive it. See, David forgot that he's merely an instrument And the musician is the one to be magnified. You and I must remember that we are like tools, but the carpenter gets the credits. We are like gym shoes, but the athlete gets the accolades. We're like clay, but the potter gets the praise. We are but servants, and our God gets the glory. See, you are just an instrument in God's hand. What a great privilege and honor. But when he does something through you, you make sure you give it back to him in praise. See, for David right here, in wanting to count the people, he wanted to puff up his chest and say, I did this. Let's go. I did this. That was me. I pulled myself up. I worked hard. I went to school. I took those credits. I did that classwork. And we got to understand, no, you don't get credit. Give it to God. Yes, you were obedient. Praise God for that. But God gets all the glory. At the end of the day, what it is, is pride. Pride that led led David to do something dumb. You know, I talk about pride here often, and I'm realizing, um, we just got to keep talking about it. Pride is arguably the very first sin When Adam and Eve were in the garden, took of the fruit, they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. What is that? Pride. I've told you before, the pride is like the summer. What happens? It comes before the fall. See, in times of prosperity, pride, self-reliance, is our greatest danger. Because we begin to think that we've done it. We become impressed with ourselves and we think that things couldn't have happened if it weren't for us. Don't lie. You know you've thought that before. And so what happens is pride doesn't let us humble ourselves but highlight ourselves. Pride never says I'm sorry because you're never wrong. This is what pride does to us. It puts us up, up, puts us up and removes God from the picture. Erica mentioned earlier we were at the planetarium yesterday, which is a really remarkable thing. We went to a, a, a show there in a planetarium, though, and the very first thing out of the mouth, which we expected, we know this is going to be the case, are evolutionary theories that remove God from the equation, hence the Big Bang Theory. We, we expect that. But what is wild to us time and time again is the efforts of so-called science to disprove faith with their own faith of their own, like the Big Bang Theory, which is faith. It's not, it's not a science. It can't be proven. In fact, we saw one one scientist was discussing um, the question, what happened before the Big Bang? And I'm like, I want to know your answer to this one. Because one of the laws of thermodynamics says something cannot come from nothing. And so you know what they said? An infinite amount of smaller bangs. To which I said, where did those smaller bangs come from? How are they infinite? You see, our universe begs for something eternal... And we acknowledge God is eternal. That's faith. We know that's faith. We're not trying to pretend. There's a lot of evidence and proof of our faith. But we're acknowledging God here. And so human pride places self above God, takes credit in our brilliance, and removes God from the picture. And God, what he does with King David and often does with us, taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, remember me? You know I'm here still. Talking with a brother recently, it's kind of like God holding the handlebars of our bicycle. And every so often, we get really prideful. He just, he just "Let's go a little bit. There's that little swivel. He puts his hands back on. Hey, remember me? And sometimes, though, we don't. and we're, We just let ourselves go. We crash because we tried to do life without God. Pride's a dangerous thing. And Joab is here begging David, along with his commanders, David, don't go number these people. It says David prevailed against him there in verse 4. So he went, he went from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the, most farther, the northern farthest part in the kingdom of Israel, and Beersheba, the southernmost part. Basically, he's saying, span it from north to south, from east to west, and tell me how many valiant warriors we got. So Joab goes ahead and does that. It takes him nine months, almost ten months, we see in verse 8. And in verse 9, we realize that David's kingdom has 1.3 million soldiers. That's a pretty vast army. But one thing that's amazing about King David is how he learns from his previous failures. You see, in, in the story of Bathsheba and his taking of Uriah's wife, It took him about nine months before he became real convicted of his sin and did something about it. In this story, it takes about nine minutes. Look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. What we see is King David is a man who has failed immensely like you and I fail and he's also one then who is repenting greatly after his failure. David has something to do. realizes he needs to get right with God here. He needs to get right with God because he's done wrong. And there are, there are four things he does in particular that I think you and I need to understand when we're down for the count because of the count. When we're down for our decisions and our prideful choices. Look what he does in verse 10. There's a quick recognition of his failure. A quick recognition. See, that's the first thing we got to do. We can't labor over our failure And ignore it. We've got got to keep a quick recognition. My wife often says and prays, God, keep me on a short leash. You see, when a dog is on a long leash, it has far more freedom to make a big mess in places. When a dog's on a shorter leash, there's more control. And in many ways, we prayed, God, keep me on a short leash. God, keep me from running away from you. Let me be quick to acknowledge my failure and my sin when I've done so. And David does it. His heart is struck Immediately secondly, he's broken over his actions. He's broken His heart was struck All right, it got him to the core the spirit of god convicted him like he wants to convict you and I when we sin The third thing is he owns up to it. He says I have sinned greatly He didn't excuse it now. He could have said you know god I just did this because i'm getting up and up in my years My son's gonna take the throne after me. I want to prepare the military. I could he doesn't do it he just says, I have sinned greatly. And he goes on to say this is very foolish in verse 10. And then in verse 11, I'm sorry, there in verse, uh, uh, verse 10, he says, take away the iniquity of your servant. The fourth thing is he asks for forgiveness. He asks God forgiveness. This is what it means to repent in God's sight. is to acknowledge our sin quickly, to be broken over, it, to own up to it, and ask God's forgiveness. And that's what David does. Let that be your prayer. God, do those things in my heart. When I am down, when I've done the wrong things, God, let me be quick to repent, run to you, be broken, own up to it. God, please forgive me. God's a merciful God. King David doesn't die on the spot because God is merciful. But what does God do to King David in this situation? What we learn is there are consequences to his actions. And God would choose to humble David in his very point of pride. His pride was in his military and its vastness. So what does God do? He humbles him there. He gives David three options that I read for you guys. The first option, he says, David, you get to do this. One of these three things I'm going to do as a punishment for your sin. You could choose one of them. Verse 13. He says, shall three years of famine come to you in in your land?" I mean, just imagine that. As a king, you have the option of choosing a consequence for your actions. And the first option is three years of, of lack of food, shortage of food, usually because of drought. Do you want that? That sounds pretty miserable. People will die of starvation in his kingdom. Well, the second option, God says, or, he says, will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? So the second option is you lose the kingdom for three months Again. And who knows how many people will die when whoever the enemy is comes in and kills people. Ruthless people. And then the third option says, or for three days will there be pestilence in your land. That is disease. That is kind of oftentimes referred to the angel of the Lord coming in and bringing death to people. And basically the prophet tells David, all right, this is your choices. Let me know which one you choose. Those are choices I don't ever want to make. You with me on that one? Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of pestilence that brings instant death. What does David choose? Well, David goes on to say this here. He says in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Basically, he's saying, bring the three days of pestilence because I'd rather fall into God's hands than the hands of wicked people. Interesting choice, huh? What goes on is that next day, God brings pestilence into the land. And we read that 70,000 people die in those three days. God humbled David in his point of greatest pride. That's a warning for us family. In fact, we read in this story an interesting part of the narrative where he sees the angel of death coming to the threshing floor of a guy named Araunah. And I don't know what that looked like for him to see the angel of death. And David says this here in in verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. He said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but those sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So, what God does says, All right, David, this is what you need to do for this pestilence to leave the land. Get that property where the the angel is about to strike down. It's a threshing floor where where the grains were were separated. Purchase it. It's on a hill. Build an altar there and give a sacrifice to me. And once that happens, I will cause the pestilence to stop. David goes to this man. He says, Hey, I want to buy your land. The guy's like, You're the king. You can have it for free. And David says, I don't want to offer a sacrifice to God that hasn't cost me anything. So he buys the land, buys the sacrifice, and offers it. And this is what we read in verse 24. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. The book ends right there. I'm reading this like, what's going on? This is like the most anticlimactic ending to the most climactic person in the Old Testament to, to this point. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. I'm like, man, that's, that's I mean, that's, that's the end of it. You know? God, God sends the plague, he, he creates this altar on this threshing floor just outside of Jerusalem on a hill, offers a sacrifice, the plague gets averted, and that's it. I'm like, what happens, what happens to David, right? I mean, the next book, 1 Kings, picks up the story, but it's a different book. It's just so wild to me. I want to recap David's life, and I'm, t- I'm going to tell you why I think it ends like this. King David was but a poor shepherd boy when God found him in 1 Samuel 16 and anointed him to be the next king in Israel. The next chapter, he confronts this nine-and-a-half-foot giant named Goliath, puts a stone between his eyes, and cuts off his head to show his valor and bravery and faith in God that Goliath mocked. After that, David becomes a celebrity in Israel, doesn't he? becomes a warrior that's known across the land the women made songs about him if you remember it says saul has killed his thousands that's the king saul has killed his thousands and david his ten thousands that's a nice jingle if you're david in fact that song went all the way to the foreign lands around where people heard of him this is this king david we're talking about who lived in caves until it's his time to become king but while in the caves god caused his army to grow it's this king david It's this King David who begins to reign after Saul dies. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem where God's presence would be. He writes psalms that we use in worship. It's this King David's story, this climactic individual. It's this David that God says to him, I'm going to make one of your descendants a great king. He's going to reign forever. It's this David we're talking about. And there's this David, whose life takes a horrible turn, when he lets the lust of his flesh lead him to take a woman who was not his wife, have an affair and kill off her husband. And his family begins to spiral. Tamar, Amnon, Absalom. And there's this David at the end of his life, makes a foolish census to take credit for all that God had done. Comes to him, senses and realize he had done wrong, repents, and there it is. That's how it ends. That's a wild thought to me. This great life of David, and the plague was averted from Israel. Last words. Why is this? I think you've seen this as the series has progressed, and even for me as a preacher, it's been interesting how victorious David was and how the last four sermons from this pulpit were pretty down, weren't they? It's just like, this is, this is getting really bad fast. It's a train wreck. It is, that, it, it is a terrible thing. You're watching it happen. But you know that there's a promise to David. And you know what? My belief is as I read the end of this book, one thing keeps coming to my mind. You know what it is? There's got to be something better than As good as he was, he's not good enough. As as climactic as he was, it it doesn't finish here. You're left wanting more in this story, aren't you? But I find it so magnificent that these last verses just drip with an image that points us to what we actually do long for. We don't long for King David, but we long for a better David. This series isn't about the king, but about the king of king's family. It's about the one who would come after David. The one who would come to deal with a plague, but not a plague of pestilence, but the plague called sin. It's the sin that has marked you and I from our birth. David could do nothing about it, but what did he have to do but go to a hill outside of Jerusalem, family? I don't think you're hearing me here. And on this hill that cost a high amount, he would make an altar where a lamb would be sacrificed, an oxen would be sacrificed, blood would flow from that hill outside of Jerusalem so that the plague would be averted, family. There would be one after King David, And his name is Jesus, who would come to deal with the plague, the bubonic plague of our hearts. And this Jesus would be carried outside of Jerusalem onto a hill called Calvary. And there God's perfect sacrifice would shed his own blood, not so that plague would be averted, but so that God's wrath would be averted. And what we long for in King David is fulfilled in his son, Jesus the Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who is this child? But Jesus himself, the son of David, born of Mary to avert the plague that was upon our existence. If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus today, I want you to understand something about Christmas season. There is no possible way we can look at the manger without seeing the cross in the background. There's no way we could think of the birth of this baby unless we see the sacrifice of this man, the God-man. And so what Jesus has done through Christmas has provided a way for your sin and your heart to be dealt with so you yourself don't have to die for your own transgressions before God, but that Jesus will do it for you and averts the wrath of God that you deserved, And that's what he's done for all who've put their faith in Jesus. If you're a child of God today, you be sure to worship our God. You be sure to give him all the praise and all the credits for all that he deserves. And that's all what is good. So as we come to Advent and we remember the coming of Jesus, let's remember that he is the one that we all longed for. And no matter what kind of decisions we've made that we regret, no matter what kind of plague that has plagued our minds because of our pride, God has made a way to deal with it. And that way is Jesus. When you are down for the count, you can count on God to bring you back up through Jesus Christ. Family, these next few weeks, we are going to look at the King of Kings, the Son of David, Jesus the Christ, and we're going to celebrate all that his coming meant, means, and will mean when he returns again. Don't be down for the count. Step up. With God's help, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you were the greater David. As we come to the end of this great life of the man, David, we, we long for something more, something greater, something better, and something better has come. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you took our place on that cross when we deserved punishment for all the ways we rebelled against you first. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would come to really encounter you, God, in a fresh and real way. God, I pray for those who hold you at arm's length, Push you away, God. I, I ask that they would humble themselves as David did. Say, God, I've, I've sinned greatly before you. Please forgive my iniquity, my sin. And Lord, for all who put their faith in Jesus, thank you for the reminder that in you there is forgiveness. That we don't need to pay it for ourselves, but you've done it for us. God, increase our faith this December and set our eyes upon our King, Jesus. In his name I pray.